Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I want to start today's podcast by thanking my newest sponsor, Keeps. Keeps makes easy and affordable hair loss treatment for men possible. Get your first month of treatment for free by going to keeps.com slash gold. While I'm stimulating what's inside your head, Keeps can help stimulate what's on top of it. In fact, while I'm talking about stimulus, Donald Trump tweeted the stimulus rug right out from under the stock market later today when he basically closed down negotiations with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats and temporarily dashed the hopes that we will get a fresh round of fiscal stimulus, which would require more monetary stimulus before the election. Now, of course, the election is just four weeks away, right? Can the drug addicts on Wall Street you know, hold off for another four weeks without going into stimulus withdrawal. So far, it doesn't look that way because, you know, when you got a a drug habit as big as the one that Wall Street has, anything that delays the next fix, right, could really uh, send you over the edge. And in fact, from a technical perspective today, we had an outside reversal day. Uh, The markets took out yesterday's high this morning when the market was up. And not only did we close lower on the day, but we closed below the lows from the prior day, by definition, making an outside reversal day. This is not a good technical pattern. In fact, it's quite bearish. And I would expect to see some follow through. In fact, Donald Trump in his tweet pretty much invited some follow through because one of the comments that he bragged about is kind of like why we don't even need the stimulus was that the stock market was near record highs, right? He bragged about how strong the economy was and how the market was at record highs, meaning that we don't really need the stimulus because we're doing well on our own. Well, I would say that the only reason the stock market is near record highs is because of the stimulus. In fact, one of the few things that the stimulus actually stimulates is the stock market. Trump is trying to claim that the stock market is strong because the economy is strong. It's actually the reverse. The stock market is strong because the economy is weak. It's the weak economy that is driving the stimulus. And without the stimulus, the stock market would actually be much lower to reflect the weakness in the economy. Because again, the stimulus can't make a weak economy strong, but it can provide more air into a stock market bubble. And that's what's been going on. Although I don't like... uh, Trump's strategy for why uh, he is walking away from talks with the Democrats, uh, because he's claiming that Nancy Pelosi just wants too big a stimulus, right? The the uh, delta between where the president is and where uh, Pelosi, the Democrats are, is $600 billion, right? Donald Trump tweeted that he's willing to sign on to a one6 trillion dollar stimulus 
but the Dems are holding tight. They insist on 2.4 trillion and there's a, an impasse and the president won't budge. And so he's uh, leaving negotiations. And the problem is, you know, once you accept the false uh, premise that government stimulus actually helps the economy, that it really is a stimulus, right? Then you've kind of lost the argument because if borrowing and printing $1.6 trillion, if that's a good thing, why isn't borrowing and printing $2.4 trillion a better thing, right? Because you put the Republicans in the position of arguing that $2.4 trillion is too much of a good thing. That somehow, if we just create $1.6 trillion out of thin air and spend it, that's really going to help. But if we push it to $2.4, it's actually going to hurt. Why? I mean, when does something good suddenly become something bad? Now, I know what Trump was trying to say is, well, the extra $600 billion, that's just going to bail out uh, Democratic states. It's going to help them out of a mess that is unrelated to COVID. But if the people in those states are going to take that money and spend it, and if just spending money is good for the economy, then why isn't that good? I mean, what difference does it make why the money is being doled out if it just benefits the economy the minute it's being spent, then what is the real rationale? Is it all partisan? Is it all political? I mean, that's kind of how it looks, is that this is all about politics, that the president doesn't want to help the Democrats because there's an election coming and he's willing to sacrifice the good of the country uh, for political partisanship. See, if Donald Trump took a principled stance, and when I mean Donald Trump, it's not just Trump. I don't want to single him out because he's got a lot of company uh, with other rhino Republicans who have also signed on to this Keynesian nonsense. But if Trump and the Republicans took a principled stance against stimulus, and instead of being in favor of 1.6, were in favor of nothing, they said, we are not going to print money and run up the debt in order to artificially boost uh, the economy now with long-term negative consequences, if they told the voters the truth and stood on principle, then at least their position would make sense. And it wouldn't look partisan. It would look like they were standing for something. But by agreeing in principle that we need more stimulus, well, then you just look stingy uh, by not willing to provide it, or you just look like you're putting uh, your own political interest ahead of the interest of the country. You know, it's hard to argue, too, that the reason that you're opposed to the $2.4 trillion is because it unnecessarily runs up the debt. I mean, once you've agreed to an extra $1.6 trillion, what's an extra $600 billion? I mean, what, what difference does it make? In fact, speaking about the, the national debt, this week, for the first time, the national debt topped $27 trillion. You know, it's now up $4 trillion this year in 2020. And the year's not even over yet. We still have a quarter left, basically. I mean, I think we could end up with $5 trillion in debt in one year, $5 trillion. If you think about that number, the national debt didn't even hit $5 trillion until I think the end of the Clinton administration, early in the George W. Bush administration. So it took all those years just to get a national debt of $5 trillion. And, and, and here we, we rack it up in a single year. And in fact, since Donald Trump took office, the national debt is up almost $7 trillion. Remember, it just turned to $20 trillion right after he was inaugurated or right around the time or maybe just before. And I think by the time Donald Trump finishes his first term, which is probably going to be his only term, but by the time he finishes that term, he will have added more to the national debt in four years than Barack Obama did in eight. And Barack Obama was the biggest deficit spender in history. Barack Obama doubled the national debt, meaning that he added as much debt in eight years as all the presidents that preceded him did since the birth of the republic right, uh, over 200 years ago. 
And Donald Trump has already outdone him or will outdo him in half the time, in just one term. Now, of course, the sad part about it is this record isn't going to last because if Biden wins, not only will he probably outspend Trump in his first term, he may outspend Trump and Obama combined in his first term. But in any event, given how much these deficits are spiraling out of control, it doesn't make any sense for the Republicans to somehow say the reason that they object to the extra $600 billion is because of the national debt. I mean, come on, who's going to believe that? No one gives a damn about the national debt. So it doesn't make any sense that the Republicans are not compromising with the Democrats, given that they've already compromised and agreed with the Democrats on principle anyway. And again, again, it's not just the budget deficits that are exploding out of control. It's the trade deficits. And in fact, you know, that's the other thing that the stimulus stimulates is our deficits, our trade deficits. Look, I am not saying that people won't temporarily benefit from the stimulus. They will. I mean, it doesn't benefit the economy, right? The stimulus doesn't make for a more vibrant economy. It doesn't lead to more production of wealth. We don't get more goods produced, more services provided because we crank up the printing presses. But we do put more money into the pockets of people who didn't earn it and now can spend and buy stuff that they really uh, can't afford because they didn't contribute and they didn't earn but they can go and take that cash and, and buy stuff. And when they do that, right, the trade deficit goes up because more people are buying stuff, but fewer people are producing the stuff that everybody is buying. So we have to rely more heavily on the stuff that the rest of the world is producing and allowing us to buy on credit. We got the August trade deficit numbers out early this morning. And we had a pretty bad deficit in July. It was initially reported as $63.6 billion, And that was slightly revised downward to $63.4 billion. So a little bit less red ink was spilled in July than what was originally estimated. Now, the consensus for August was $66.5 billion, And we ended up far exceeding that. We had a 67.1 billion dollar trade deficit in August. That was the largest trade deficit that we've had in 14 years. And it's the second worst trade deficit in the history of the country. But more important than that is if you just look at the merchandise deficit, which is goods, right? Manufactured goods. There, the deficit exploded to 83.9 billion. That is an all-time record high. So the United States has never lost more money in goods trade in one month than it lost in the month of August. And personally, again, I don't think the record's going to stand. I think we're going to break that record. And in fact, I think before the end of Trump's term, we will end up printing the largest total trade deficit in the history of the country because our surplus in services is really starting to shrink. But the point here I really want to make is Trump campaigned on making America great again, primarily by reversing our position on trade. Trump said we were losing on trade. We had lousy trade deals negotiated by incompetent leaders who sold our country out. And that's why it was an economic wasteland he was going to make America great again by renegotiating these trade deals and turning these deficits into surpluses. We were going to go from losing on trade to winning on trade. In fact, Trump said that we were going to win so much that we were going to get tired of winning because it would be so boring, right? These were the promises that Trump made. And it was going to be the manufacturing renaissance that would lead the turnaround in our balance of trade. But the reality speaks for itself. We have never had bigger trade deficits than the ones that we have under Trump. So if we were losing under Obama, we're losing even bigger under Trump. In fact, we're losing bigger than we've ever lost in the history of the republic. 
Yet Donald Trump is still campaigning as if he had kept that promise, as if he had actually made America great and restored our lost manufacturing might. He hasn't even come close to doing that. Now, I know there are a lot of people that are trying to say, well, you know, this is all because of COVID. Well, first of all, the trade balance was deteriorating before COVID, right? So we were getting bigger and bigger trade deficits even before COVID, right? Trump's tariffs were not doing anything to reduce our deficits. All they were doing is increasing taxes on American consumers who were buying imported goods, but the tariffs themselves did nothing to improve our overall uh, trade balance, contrary to what the president was boasting. But to try to say that the reason that we're running bigger deficits is because of COVID, I mean, the whole world has got COVID, right? COVID is not made in America, like so many other things that are not made in America. Neither is COVID, right? COVID was made in China, right? We imported it like everything else. But the fact of the matter is, COVID should be impacting everybody. If we're having bigger deficits, by definition, other countries that are also dealing with COVID have larger surpluses because we can't import what some other country doesn't export. So why would COVID be making America's deficits bigger while it's making our trading partners' surpluses larger? Clearly, COVID's not nothing to do with it, right? These trends were going to continue with or without COVID. COVID is just a convenient scapegoat for people to deny reality. And that reality is we have much bigger budget deficits and we have much bigger trade deficits. So Trump has failed to deliver on either of those promises. But the, the bigger problem is that the Republicans don't care. They don't care about the surging budget deficits. They don't care about the surging trade deficits. The Tea Party is dead, right? Trump killed it. It doesn't exist anymore. There is no opposition to deficits. As far as everybody is concerned, government is free. All we have to do is print money and there's no cost. There's no downside. Well, if it's all free, then why not have the stimulus? If there is no negative consequences to uh, running a $2.4 trillion extra debt, to cover the Nancy Pelosi uh, stimulus, then why not go for it, right? That is the problem that the Republicans are gonna have trying to sell this mixed message at the polls. And that's why I just looked at the uh, latest CNN poll that just came out, I think it was today, and Biden has the greatest lead I think he's had over Trump at any point during the cycle, right? We're less than one month away from the election, and the latest poll has Biden 57 Trump 41. That is a six-point lead. Uh, And this was taken after the debate and after uh, the Trump uh, COVID announcement. And by the way, if you haven't heard, you know, Trump is out of the hospital, uh, like most people, even older people uh, who have other health issues, who may be overweight, right? Even people that have problems beat COVID. It's just that The ones who don't are the ones that are older and have health problems, but most of the elderly with health problems still beat it, right? The younger people with no health problems, of course, you know, it's no big deal to them. Uh, So Trump is is out much to the chagrin of probably a lot of people on the left who were hoping that uh, Trump might actually succumb uh, to COVID and be one of the rare people uh, who actually died from the disease. Uh, But uh, fortunately, uh, Trump is still around um, and but he is sinking in the polls. And that is another major concern for the stock market. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I mean, how could the stock market not be worried looking at these poll numbers? Because the market wasn't down uh, by much or even down at all until we got Trump's tweet about uh, the stimulus talks shutting down. But why isn't the prospect of a Biden victory exacting a bigger toll 
on the stock market. I mean, nobody could argue that a major factor in the Trump rally was the corporate tax cuts. Not only was there the assumption that lower taxes would lead to a stronger economy and therefore more earnings, lower taxes by definition meant that corporations could keep more of what they earned. And the way you value a stock is the present value of its future after tax earnings. And all things being equal, if you lower the tax rate, you increase your after-tax earnings. Therefore, you increase the present value of those income streams, and that will be reflected in the price of the stock. But the reverse happens when you increase corporate taxes. In fact, if you look at the tax hikes that are being uh, proposed now by Biden, both on the corporation when it earns the money and on the shareholders when they receive that money, either in capital gains or dividends, the percentage increase in the rate of tax dwarfs the percentage by which they went down. So as good as the tax cuts were for stocks, the tax hikes will be much worse because the tax hikes are a lot bigger than the tax cuts. So the market should already be nervous, even without the prospect of less short-term stimulus. But really, the only thing the stock market will have going for it in the Obama administration is stimulus, is more money printing, more inflation. And the question is, will inflation trump uh, taxation? Will a higher multiple associated with more money printing offset the lower after-tax earnings associated with the, the tax hikes? But, you know, it's not just taxes that are going to go up, but earnings are going to go down. And so it's going to be a double whammy. So I don't really think it's possible for the Fed to print enough money to offset that. If it does, it's only in the pure nominal sense, meaning the dollar is losing so much value that when you price stocks in dollars of diminished value, well, you're going to get a higher number. But in real terms, priced in real money like gold, uh, the price of stocks is going to collapse. You know, one price that hasn't been going up is the price of keeping your hair. My new sponsor is Keeps, and Keeps offers products to help slow down hair loss. Two out of three guys are going to experience hair loss by the time they're 35. But luckily, thanks to the advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can help treat the symptoms of hair loss and help you keep the hair that you have. I started losing my hair when I was in my 20s. I was in college and it was a very frustrating experience. Now, fortunately, I had a lot of hair to start with, so I, I had a lot to spare. Uh, but at some point, I discovered minoxidil and I started using it regularly. And I'm convinced that it was my regular use of minoxidil that dramatically slowed down my hair loss. Now, of course, when I first started using it, it was really expensive. And I was, you know, I was young. I didn't have that much money and it was pretty expensive. Uh, to buy it. I remember for a while, a buddy of mine started sending me bottles that he was buying in Spain because the cost of buying the drug that was on patent, you know, here in the U.S., they were selling it for a lot less money out of the country. So a buddy of mine was just shipping me uh, the minoxidil so I wouldn't have to buy it because it was so expensive. Well, fortunately, that's not the case now with Keeps because the price has gone down so low that you could keep more of your hair and keep more of your money at the same time. The treatments start for as little as $10 a month, which is a small price to pay to keep something as valuable as your hair. But the sooner you start treatment, the more hair you'll save. So act fast. Take action today to prevent your hair loss before it gets worse. Get your first month of treatment for free by going to keeps.com gold. That's keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash gold and get your first month of treatment for free. And though Trump may have pulled the rug out from under the markets by shutting down the stimulus talks, Jerome Powell was uh, at a q and I'm not really sure what the event was. I, I watched it live, uh, but I forget where he was. But he took questions and answers. And Powell basically said that the economy needs more stimulus, right? It actually needs it, right? It needs it like a drug addict uh, needs heroin, uh, but does a drug addict really need heroin? No, not if the drug addict wants to be healthy and doesn't want to be a drug addict anymore, right? Uh, he needs to go cold turkey and stop taking heroin. 
But Powell doesn't understand this. Of course, another thing he doesn't understand is economics. And that's quite apparent to me. I mean, either he doesn't understand economics or he's just a liar. Uh, but either way, you know, it's not it's not a good you know range of possibilities. Because one of the things that, that he said was that unlike past recessions, the recession that we have now was not caused by any economic imbalances. Oh, really? There were no economic imbalances? I mean, that's all we've got is imbalances, thanks to the Fed. Why is this recession so severe, right? Why was the economy so ill-prepared for COVID-19 or anything for that matter? Because we had nothing saved for a rainy day. It was the lack of savings and the abundance of debt that left the economy so vulnerable to this downturn, to this virus. That's an imbalance. What caused that imbalance? The Fed. Yet Powell doesn't even recognize that the imbalance that the Fed created exists. If the Fed doesn't even recognize the problem, forgetting about understanding its role in creating it, how is it going to solve it? It can't solve a problem that it doesn't understand. All it could do is make it worse. The reason that this recession is so bad is because the very economic imbalances that Powell denies exists, we're so big. That's the problem. You know, another question too, he got about low interest rates and he said, you know, low interest rates are good for the economy. We're helping the economy with low interest rates. Again, low interest rates are not necessarily good for the economy. It depends on how you get them. If low interest rates are the natural consequence of an economy that has an abundance of savings, and not a lot of debt, right? If everybody is under-consuming and saving and you have all the savings, right? Then you can have low interest rates. And of course, if you have sound money and low inflation, all these things are gonna factor into low interest rates. Low interest rates reward frugal economies that have a lot of savings and sound money, in which case low interest rates are good. But that's not why interest rates are low in America, right? Interest rates should be very high in America based on the uh, economic fundamentals. The only reason they're not is because the Fed is artificially manipulating the market, right? It's like the Fed has its thumb on the scale, and so the reading is inaccurate. Interest rates, low interest rates rather, are not a good thing if they are derived from artificial manipulation, right? Because like any price fixing, right? Whenever the government interferes in the free market and sets a price that is different than the market price, you create misallocations. You create uh, malinvestments or surpluses. You create shortages, right? The, the market doesn't function properly when supply and demand is interfered with by government. Well, that is what the Fed has done with artificially manipulating interest rates lower. So in this case, low interest rates are not good for the economy. They are bad for the economy. The economy actually needs higher interest rates. Higher interest rates would be good for an economy with too much debt that needs to encourage more savings and less spending. We need higher interest rates. That's what's good for us. That's what cures what ails us. The Fed is preventing that cure because of the short-term pain associated with swallowing the bitter-tasting medicine, right? That, that is the problem. So when Powell insists that low interest rates are good for the economy, it's because he doesn't understand the economy. He doesn't understand that low interest rates are part of the problem, not part of the solution. And by keeping interest rates artificially low, the Fed is making the problem worse while preventing a legitimate recovery from ever taking place. No, there was one uh, decent question that he was asked by somebody who actually was thinking, and I forget, I think it was a female reporter or whoever it was, but I think she asked Powell, isn't he concerned here about getting what he wishes for, right? There's that old saying, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And in this circumstance, what the Fed is wishing for is higher inflation. So the reporter is saying, hey, you know, isn't that very dangerous? Aren't you tempting fate here? Because what happens if you get more inflation, 
how do you deal with that? How do you rein it in, right? Especially if you get more than you bargain for. And again, Powell really just dismissed the concern as if, oh, that's no big deal. I mean, we should be so lucky as to get more inflation than we bargained for. And if we get too much, you know, dialing it back is, is no big deal. Like that's some kind of an easy problem to have. No, it's not. It's an impossible problem to have. You see, what the Fed is doing is creating a situation where we are going to get inflation that is well above the 2% target, right? way, way, way above it. And it will be impossible for the Fed to cure that inflation problem without killing the economy, right? Because the, the cure will be as bad as the disease. So either we die from the disease or we die from the cure, right? The Fed is going to have to pick its poison. But the Fed doesn't even recognize that that's the dilemma that it's going to be in. Because Powell still doesn't understand economics. He still has no idea what he's talking about, either that or he's simply lying through his teeth. One person, though, who does understand the economy is Jim Grant of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. He's a good guy, uh, one of the few people that actually is respected out there that does know what he's talking about. And I, I listened to an interview with Jim Grant last week. It was on YouTube somewhere. forget who interviewed him. But he made a point that was very good. It was a point that I really hadn't thought about, but I'm going to elaborate on it far beyond uh, what Jim Grant said uh, during this interview, although Grant probably had some of these thoughts on his own, just uh, didn't get a chance to express them during this interview. But the point that Jim Grant brought up had to do with pensions versus people who have 401ks or IRAs, right? Because the vast majority of people today who are in the private sector don't have a pension, right? They just have their own savings, their own investment accounts. They had money to invest. They didn't get a, a pension. And the pension gives you a fixed amount of money that you can live on when you're retired. But when you have your own IRA or 401k, you don't have any kind of set retirement income. You simply have whatever income your portfolio of stocks and bonds is able to generate. And that was a point that Grant was making was that today with interest rates at a half a percent, if you need $50,000 a year to live, when rates were at 5%, all you had to do was save a million dollars and you could get 5% in income off of a million dollar portfolio without ever uh, touching the principal. So you can continue to get your $50,000 a year if you saved up a million dollars. But with interest rates at a half a percent, in order to get the same $50,000 a year, taking the same amount of risk, which is basically none, right? Because you're just putting your money in, 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 a, in a very short term government bonds, so you don't take risk. But if now you can only get a half a percent, instead of $1 million, you now need $10 million. Now, how many people have been able to save up $10 million to finance their retirement? Very few, because they, they don't have the income streams that a private pension would have supplied. So Grant's point was that Americans can't afford to retire, or what they're doing is gambling with their retirement money because the amount of money that they've saved is inadequate to provide enough cash flow to retire on. So instead they're gambling with their retirement money in the stock market. Well, what happens when the bottom drops out? This is a gigantic bubble. The retirement dreams of a whole generation of Americans are gonna disappear, right? They're just like a mirage. They weren't even real. But here's a point that I wanna make, right? And this is a point that Jim Grant didn't make, and maybe he's thought about it, but this is really what I started thinking about when, when, uh, when, when Grant was talking, is that it's the government workers who have the pensions. I mean, there are some people in the private sector that have pensions, but again, most of them don't. But in the government, everybody gets pensions, right? You have policemen, you have firefighters, you have teachers, you know, sanitation engineers, all sorts of guys that work for government, they get actual pensions. Right. So let's say you worked for government and you retire and you had a job and maybe you were making 
70, $80,000 a year, whatever. I'm just, you know, just making up some numbers or maybe you were making more. But let's say when you retire, you actually have a pension that does pay you um, $50,000 a year in your pension. Well, what is that pension worth in the private sector? Well, I just said a private citizen would have to save $10 million to be able to generate $50,000 a year. But if a government retiree now has a pension that is generating $50,000 a year, that pension is worth $10 million. So in other words, you have all these government employees who had relatively lower skilled, lower paying jobs retiring as multimillionaires on these enormous pensions. And then the, the people in the private sector who have to pay for these pensions are too broke to retire on their own. In fact, one of the reasons they're so broke is because of all the taxes they paid uh, to finance uh, the generous pay packages and pensions of government workers. See, the big problem with these government pensions is they're massively underfunded, which means current taxpayers have to foot the bill. So all these Americans who worked in the private sector who now can't afford to retire because they didn't save enough money to retire in this low interest rate environment because they didn't have a, a pension, they just had their own investment account, they can't afford to retire, they have to keep working, but now more and more of the money they earn is gonna go to pay for the retirement of the government workers who are retiring multimillionaires. But not only do the private sector workers have to pay to cover the pension shortfalls of the government workers who have retired, they have to keep paying taxes to cover the new government workers who have taken their place. So the cost of government is exploding. You gotta pay for the government we have now, and you gotta pay for the government we have yesterday because the taxes you paid yesterday didn't cut it because the politicians weren't honest with voters. They didn't raise taxes high enough to fund the pensions. They just kicked the can down the road and now uh, the generation is caught up with the can. And it's another reason why people in the private sector will never be able to retire. And so my thought process was, imagine you know, the animosity really that this is creating. There is a huge divide between people who worked for government and can now retire as multimillionaires on fat pensions and people who worked in the private sector who can never retire because they're broke. And in fact, even people who had lower paying jobs working for government and had jobs that required less skill and who didn't have to work as many hours, they are going to be living far larger uh, because their pension benefits have an enormous economic value in today's uh, low interest rate environment. Now, the one thing that's gonna change this is gonna be inflation, right? That's gonna be the great equalizer. So you know, don't necessarily uh, start envying all these government workers because you think they're gonna live out the rest of their days uh, you know, on these fat pensions, they're not right? Because the dollar is going to collapse. The value of those pensions is going to collapse along with it. So this whole thing is going to come falling down. But one of the reasons is because of this dichotomy where you've created uh, two classes of citizens. You know, it's almost like royalty, the people who work for government and the serfs, the slaves, the people in the private sector who had to support them, who had to pay their salaries when they were working and now have to pay their pensions now that they've retired. Meanwhile, they're working harder than ever themselves and they can never retire because they're supporting government workers, both past and present, instead of themselves and their own family members. I wanna get back to the markets again because I wanted to point out and probably forgot earlier was that when Trump made the announcement of the stalemate and that the talks had shut down. And by the way, Nancy Pelosi came out with a tweet of her own, uh, basically blaming the president for everything. Uh, but when the stock market sold off, everything sold off. Gold sold off, silver, oil surrendered a lot of its gains. You know, bonds rallied, right? Because they had been selling off. In fact, the yield on the 30-year had gotten to about the highest point. We got up to 1.6%. This was the highest yield on the 30 year since mid or early June. So we really had started to move up and uh, this turned that around. Also the dollar, the dollar which had been down on the day had a sharp rally once the stimulus uh, you know, rug was pulled. And again, the idea is that the stimulus is actually good 
for the economy and the markets, and therefore anything that delays the stimulus is bad, and that is therefore bullish for bonds and bullish for the dollar. But it's not because the stimulus is going to come. It doesn't matter if it gets delayed. The fact that we're going to get more stimulus is inevitable. In fact, when Donald Trump, again, mentioned that the stock market was really high, therefore we don't need stimulus, the immediate effect is that the stock market now sells off because it's not going to get stimulus. And it keeps going down until the Fed comes to the rescue. Now, Powell keeps saying the economy needs more stimulus. What he wants is for the Congress to move first with more fiscal stimulus that he can monetize. But the Fed will act unilaterally with more monetary stimulus if it's pushed into doing so by a weakening stock market. See, anytime the Fed sees the stock market really going down, because as much as the Fed denies that it cares about the stock market, and Powell did that again today, tried to deny that the Fed cares about the stock market, it's really all they care about, because that's all they have influence on, is asset prices, they're creating inflation, and when it shows up in higher stock prices, everybody likes it. But gold should not sell off just because stimulus is delayed. Because A, we already have stimulus. I mean, it's ongoing, right? Whether they increase the dose now or later doesn't matter. The fact that the dose is going up is inevitable. And I don't even think gold today, the current price of you know around 1900 I don't even think that reflects all the stimulus that we've already had. Forget about all the additional stimulus we're going to get. We don't even have a price that reflects what we already had. So I think the fact that the traders are still, you know, so fixated on, on the timing of the stimulus is irrelevant. Anybody that understands what's really going on should take advantage of these opportunities. When you see gold going down just because somebody is worried that the stimulus is going to be delayed, you buy the dip because the stimulus is inevitable. And again, the problem with the stimulus is it makes the economy worse, not better. You're putting out fire with gasoline. And if you're going to pour gasoline on a fire, it's going to get bigger. So every time they stimulate the economy, it gets worse and therefore it needs more stimulus. But because it's worse, it needs an even bigger stimulus. And then when you give it an even bigger stimulus, you're pouring even more gasoline on a bigger fire. And so the process continues to repeat. So any of these pullbacks are, are just noise and just buying opportunities. By the way, too, for those of you who uh, think Bitcoin is, uh, is digital gold or is somehow uncorrelated uh, to the markets, I mean, Bitcoin tanked along with everything else, right? As soon as the news came out, I think Bitcoin was trading at around 10,700 or so and immediately sold back off to like 10,500 as soon as the market tanked. So it just moved exactly with all the other assets. Uh, it didn't move up to kind of be non-correlated. It just moved in the exact same direction as every other asset, including the safe haven assets. I mean, the only safe haven asset that went up was bonds and the dollar. But I don't think bonds of the dollar represent legitimate safe havens. Gold is, and it went down. Uh, but the dollar and the bond market benefited not as safe havens, but from the perception that a weaker economy would be good for the dollar and good for bonds because it would cause people to buy up those assets. Right? That's what happened. But the reality is the economy is going to be weaker regardless of whether or not we get more stimulus. And the stimulus actually hurts the economy that they're trying to stimulate. And it is decisively bearish for dollars and bonds because the more dollars they create, the less they're worth. And since bonds are simply IOU dollars, the less the dollar is worth, the less bonds are worth. So again, if people really understood the reality of what was going on, they would have been dumping their dollars in their bonds and they would have been buying gold. And that is ultimately the trade that I expect to happen. That decoupling, that reality is going to set in and it's going to set it at some time soon. The problem is by the time it really happens, it's really too late to adjust your portfolio. What you need to do is anticipate that that is going to happen and you need to get there before the market, right? You need to build your portfolio of gold, gold stocks, foreign assets now before the bottom drops out of the dollar, before people realize that regardless of when we get the stimulus, all stimulus 
is a sedative for the real economy. It undermines the value of the dollar and American productivity. And the important thing is look at these deficits. The trade deficits are at record highs. The budget deficits are at record highs. That means the twin deficits are at a record high. This is a fundamental major negative for the dollar. And that major negative is just going to keep getting worse and worse. Just want to finish up the podcast, though, with one final thought. One of the uh, issues that seemed to haunt Trump following the first debate was his supposed reluctance to condemn white supremacists. And of course, this is the media making a mountain out of a molehill. I mean, Trump has never supported white supremacists. In fact, the, the left always likes to go back to his famous comments about, you know, there were good people on both sides uh, of that early, that, that protest. And Trump was correct in that statement. He wasn't saying that the white supremacists were good people. It's just that there were good people alongside the white supremacists, right? So that was the only point that he was making. There were good and bad people on both sides. The bad people were the white supremacists. He was not defending white supremacy. I don't think anybody is going to defend uh, white supremacy, right? So I don't think Trump has to uh, condemn it more emphatically, but he went back out and said, look, yes, he condemns uh, white supremacy. I mean, that's not really going out on a limb, right? I would condemn any group for thinking that they're supreme over any other group, to think that your, your, your race is somehow superior to any other race, right? So that, that is a, a belief system that I think most people uh, would condemn and say, no, I, I, I reject that. But what's interesting is not that everybody is focused on Trump's, you know, failure to condemn adequately white supremacy, right? How come nobody ever asks Joe Biden to condemn socialism, right? I mean, they want to ask Trump to condemn white supremacy, ask Biden to condemn socialism or even communism or Marxism. Ask him to condemn one of these radical ideas. He won't do that at all, right? At least Trump will condemn white supremacy if you ask him. A, nobody asked Biden to condemn socialism, but B, if you asked him, he wouldn't do it. And, you know, I don't like white supremacists either, right? I mean, I'm Jewish and, you know, the white supremacists don't like Jews either, right? I mean, they probably don't even consider me white because I'm Jewish. In fact, I'm not even sure, you know, in the hierarchy of hate, do the white supremacists hate blacks more or do they hate Jews more, right? I suppose the worst thing you could be is a black Jew. I mean, there's not that many of those, but to the extent that that's what you are, then they really hate you. But the bottom line is I've got no love loss for the white supremacists either, right? So they don't like me. And and so I have a reason to be just as anti-white supremacist groups as any African-American. But socialists bother me a lot more. I look at socialism and all of its various Uh, branches, whether it's communism, fascism, however you want to define it, that's the real threat. I don't look at white supremacists as a threat to me, right? Because just because they want to hate me and just because they want to think they're superior to me, that doesn't necessarily harm me. I mean, not everybody is going to like me. I don't have a right to be liked. People could hate me for whatever reason they want to hate me. The only problem I would have with right supremacists, other than disagreeing with their premise, would be if they did something harmful to me because they felt that their superiority justified it. So if they wanted to physically harm me, you know, beat me up, right, steal from me, then I would have a problem, right? If they just want to hate me in quiet and leave me alone, all right, whatever. I mean, I'm going to have to tolerate that because we live in a free society. And that's what happens when you live in a free society. People are free to hate you and you have to deal with it, right? But socialism, by definition, doesn't want to leave me alone. The socialist doesn't want to just hate me. In fact, the socialist could pretend to love me, but they want to steal my stuff. They want to destroy my rights. That is the threat, right? I would rather have somebody hate me and leave me alone than somebody pretend to love me and want to steal my stuff. So the real threat that needs to be condemned 
is socialism and the whole socialist ideology, right? Marxism, communism, right? These things need to be condemned. Now, I'm sure Donald Trump would condemn them if you asked him, yeah, he'll come right out and condemn them. Will Biden? No, because that's a good block of his constituency. Those are all the Biden voters. Those are all the AOC voters. So if the left is going to make a big deal out of Trump's failure to condemn white supremacy, something that he's condemned, the right needs to hold Biden to the same standard and demand that he condemn something far worse, socialism. The idea that you think that you have the right to steal from other people, to take their property, to force them into involuntary servitude. Socialism has nothing to do with leaving people alone. It has to do with imposing your will on other people by force, by taking stuff at gunpoint from other people, right? So socialism is evil and is far more worthy of condemnation than is white supremacy, which is wrong and which is bad, but is not the systemic threat that is posed by socialism. And by the way, I would think that the number of white supremacists in this country is relatively small. I mean, I don't know how many it is, but I'm sure that there are far more people in America that identify as socialists than white supremacists. So instead of focusing on a real non-existent threat, maybe a nuisance, a couple, you know, some kooky people that have some nutty ideas, instead of focusing on that, the real issue is all the people that believe in something as evil, as inherently immoral, and as dangerous as socialism. More people have died right, pursuing socialism probably than even the religious wars uh, that have taken place over the centuries. It, 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 it is such a dangerous a doctrine and one that has been so widely discredited, not only just on paper with logic, but with facts. History is replete with examples of these failed socialist experiments that have led to poverty and bloodshed. Yet you have so many people that want to repeat that over and over again. So Biden needs to condemn that. And if he won't condemn it, the voters need to condemn him at the polls. 